ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Russell Moore. You're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore conversations and questions from a Christian perspective. And I'm, I'm really excited about uh, this week's show. I think I've told you all before about uh, being a teenager and kind of learning what weaponized forgiveness could be, even though I wouldn't have had that category for it. Uh, Sitting around a campfire at youth group and uh, there was a a girl in the youth group who was notorious for saying to people, you know, Janet, I need to ask you to forgive me because I, I just can't stand the sound of your voice. And every time you walk in the room, I just uh, hate it. And I've got all this hatred for you. And I know everybody else does too, but uh, that's no excuse for me. Jesus would have me to forgive you. And so would you, would you please forgive me? So Janet is in the situation where if she says, I don't forgive you, she's not being Christian. And yet she's sitting there thinking, wait a minute, is this revenge? Does everybody think badly of me? Is this how, how I'm seen by other people? Uh, and I could sense I don't think this is what Jesus was talking about. Now, since then, I have seen infinitely almost worse uh, in terms of the way particularly sexual abuse victims have been told, forgive, and, and what they mean, what is meant by that is move on, don't hold this person accountable. Just today, uh, I received a message from a sexual abuse survivor who said, I'm, I'm looking here and I can see on social media, the man who abused me reported out in the public everything. Everybody knows about this. And he's uh, teaching the Bible somewhere. What, what do I do with that? Um, Tim Keller is with us today, and that's what we're going to be talking about is forgiveness. He is the author of the book, 
forgive, why should I, and how can I? And we're going to be talking about both of those questions today. Tim Keller, of course, is the founder of Redeemer City City, founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, a lot of other things familiar to, I would think, everybody who listens to this podcast. Tim Keller, thanks for being back with us. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to be here and talk to you about this kind of thorny subject. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I we were just talking uh, offline. We have a, a book club we're part of, it, and we're going to actually be talking about the book tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's one of those unusual times when a member of the group's book is what we're talking about, and so I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm getting an edge uh, right now before we have this conversation tonight because I'll have some insider knowledge that other people <laughs> won't have. So I'm grateful for that. What What would you say, Tim, to this this young woman who uh, her her people attack her, and yet they say to her, "You need to just you need to forgive and move on from this." Well, uh, if. If you were going to ask me a little more of an abstract, I'll give you some theological reasons uh, behind this. But I think pastorally what I'd say to her is that forgiveness is not uh, a contradiction to the pursuit of justice. Hmm. That they are uh, not only, I would I even go so far as to say, internal forgiveness. That is dealing with your anger and... Um, uh, and eschewing, great word, huh? Mm-hmm. Revenge is a precondition for really pursuing justice, mm-hmm. uh, rather than a contradiction of it. So, what mm-hmm. I would say is the difference between vengeance and pursuing justice is that, first of all, vengeance is something that's eating you up inside. As you, you may say, well, I'm going, I'm trying to get some consequences for this person. Okay, well, good. There, there can be an overlap. By the way, there is an overlap between vengeance and um, and doing justice. So, for example, to get the person uh, accountable to a, uh, let's say, an ecclesiastical court. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, by the way, you Baptists don't know what ecclesiastical courts are, but I just thought oh, you Oh, yes, to... we do. Oh, yes, you do. Okay. <laughs> so to make the person accountable to his denomination in some way, uh, frankly, a person who's after a per, uh, vengeance and justice would both seek that. But in vengeance, it's all about you. It's about making the person suffer. Uh, in justice, what you're concerned about is future victims. You're concerned mm-hmm. about um, the perpetrator, let's just say himself, because it's never it's never loving to let somebody just go on in a sin. I mean, uh, you know, it says uh, if you see a brother caught in a trespass, that's Galatians 6. You're supposed to find a way to get the person out. They're caught. They're stuck. They're in a pattern. So for the perpetrator's sake, the victim's sake, for God's sake, for the church's sake, for justice's sake. But in vengeance, it's all about you, even though you can hide behind all those things. Mm -hmm. And generally, vengeance goes, um, it eats you up. Secondly, it uh, very often goes awry because you sometimes go after more than just justice. You know, you, you... if it doesn't look you're getting justice, then you do everything you can to hurt the person any way you possibly can. And it's so that, that I would say vengeance isn't doing justice, but doing justice is something that you should do. And here's the theology. I wouldn't necessarily say this to her. Uh, I would say go do justice, but be careful that you're not doing it out of a desire just to make the person suffer. You'd have to 
remind yourself, it's in the book, you have to remind yourself that you're a sinner living by God's forgiveness. You have to uh, uh, say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Uh, I don't know all this person deserves. I'm going to let you do that, Lord. So there's all sorts of ways of getting internal forgiveness. But the key is on the cross, when, when Jesus died, he was both satisfying justice and he was opening the way for God to forgive us at the very same moment. Mm -hmm. it, it's not mm -hmm. it, the cross is not more about forgiveness and justice or justice of forgiveness. Of course, you and I believe in the penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, and by the way, I found it fascinating that you know Jacob and Rachel Den Hollander wrote a really great article about how penal substitutionary—that's a very traditional view of atonement—is a really great uh, theological basis for giving both forgiveness and pursuit of justice, because that's what you have mm -hmm. on the cross. Now, I wouldn't do that to the poor woman, <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah. behind the idea of saying, forgive and then go do justice. I wanna come back to the cross, but before I do, uh, I think there are some people who think, if, I, if I've forgiven, that means that this isn't plaguing me inside anymore. So w when you mm. said this isn't eating you up inside, I think sometimes there are people who think because I still grieve this or am, am angry about this, uh, that that means I haven't forgiven. And they're expecting that what it looks like to really forgive is to be in this sort of tranquility. Right. But that's not the case, is it? No, um, it, it, forgiveness is both a process and, and a, a promise. And I think you have to make the promise for the process to work. If you, mm. uh, that forgiveness, another way to put it, I think I got this from David Pallison, our, uh, forgiveness is granted before it's felt. If you wait mm. to feel it before you grant it, you'll wait forever. Because most people think if I'm still angry, I haven't forgiven or I can't yeah. forgive until I stop, until the anger goes away. He would say, it's granted before it's felt, because what is it? what does it mean to grant forgiveness? Well, first of all, is to remember that you're a sinner. And then secondly, to make a commitment, not, and this is a little bit of a simplification, not to, not to throw this thing back up into the perpetrator's face, not to throw it up to other people so that they will ruin his reputation and not to keep bringing it up to yourself. So, for example, let me let me really get this down to earth here. Um, if my wife, on a, 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 a some day she loses her temper with me and she says, "You big blue turnip," and then later she comes back and says, "You know, I should never have done that. I'm very sorry. Would you forgive me for calling you a blue turnip?" And I say, "I forgive you, honey." But two months later, I'm very angry with her, and I say, "And you called me a blue turnip." Now, what I've done there is I've failed to forgive. Now, I, I'm no. being a little trivial just because I, you know, I'm just a little levity here. But yeah. the point is, yeah. if, I for, if I have promised to forgive her, that means I don't throw it back up to in her face. It means I also don't go telling other people, did you know she called me? And then I also don't keep bringing it up to myself. And if you, uh, that takes time and, it's, it, and you do it imperfectly. But if you're trying to do that slowly but surely, you start to feel it. You know, you start to feel, you, you have to start by framing it, reminding yourself that, look, I'm a sinner too, and I live by God's forgiveness, and Christ did not take vengeance on me. Mm -hmm. uh, and you start with that, and then you make this commitment, and then you 
uh, slowly you start to feel it. So, yeah, you have to feel it. And in the process, even if you still feel angry, I would say, but if you've made that commitment, you have forgiven. What about the opposite situation? I think about all the time something you have probably long ago forgotten uh, because it was uh, it was probably just a, a, an incidental thing for you, but it meant a lot to me. We were having a conversation after I'd gone through some stuff and you said, uh, be sure that you deal with your anger. And I said to you, well, I'm not angry. I'm really not. I'm not uh, angry. I don't have any bitterness toward anybody. And what you said was, well, what if you're just numb? What if you've just sort of redirected that anger and you're not paying attention to it? And what if it's just politeness uh, rather than than dealing with the the anger? Well, how does somebody know if they've just sort of gone numb? Because I think a lot of people that happens, it's just that they they maybe it seems like they've forgiven, but it's just because they just don't care anymore. Well, yeah. Uh, by the way, you know, the only reason I'm, I'm interested that you remember that the only reason I would have had the insight to do that is because Russell, I do that. Mm-hmm. I, I do it. It, it um, I wonder whether it's a bit of a male thing, because mm-hmm. at least yeah. in my marriage, uh, Kathy's often say, look, you know what? You are still angry at me about this. And I look at it and I realize that what I, the way I dealt with it was by somehow, I really, I don't know, you know, I hate to get it. I'm not being Freudian here. I really pushed it down, really repressed it Mm -hmm. because I don't like to think of myself as an angry person. Yeah. So um, in some ways I'm numb because I numbed myself because if I felt pain all the time, then I would say I'm an angry person. Mm -hmm. So mm-hmm. I just don't like to think of myself that way. So I just found a way of, of uh, hiding it from myself. Mm. And and uh, Kathy thinks, I mean, I don't want to get into gender stereotypes, but there's something, you know, stereotypes are always uh, based on some characteristics. And in my case, I think Kathy would say she's always quite aware she's mad mm. or not. And over the years, she's said, you know, Tomorrow you'll tell me if you're mad or not, because you'll get down and you'll pray and you've gotten really good over the years, even for a guy to say, you know, I really was pretty mad at you yesterday. Maybe you won't be, maybe you're not, but I think you are. And I mm. want to talk about it tomorrow. That's it. This, mm. this is the great thing about, you know, 45, 50 years of marriage is you yeah. really get to know each other. And she'll just say, you know what? I, I don't think you even know that you're down, you're up, you're unhappy. And it's probably because you're mad and you probably think you're mad at me. And I don't think you know it yet, but I think I know you enough to know that after prayer tomorrow, you'll be able to tell me. And the next day, I, yeah. So, yeah, that's how that works. Uh, I only only asked you about it because I know I do it. Mm. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, the cross and about how uh, forgiveness is modeled after God's forgiveness. Um, I I actually had someone say to me, a a non-believer, who said, why are you all always talking about forgiveness when you serve a God who doesn't really forgive? And and, uh, I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, Mm -hmm. you believe in hell. And so you believe that there's a God who will judge people forever and ever and ever and ever and ever with no end. And there has to be this transaction that takes place at the cross in order for him to forgive you. 
So what if I did that? What if I said, I'm going to forgive you, but I've got to punch you for five minutes before I do? You would say there's something wrong with me. How is there not something wrong with God? What would you say to him? Well, he he doesn't seem to be, um, he, 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 he does look to me like he's thinking about uh, hell as a, um, as a very unnatural thing. I mean, here's where I, even as C.S. Lewis was no Calvinist, and I am, I think I think Lewis is absolutely right that basically, uh, uh, and and there are there are places like Romans one, um, actually Second Thessalonians where it talks about being shut out from God's presence. Basically, if you're created to be loving God, and if you love anything more than God, if you if you focus your life on something else, you have breakdown. If you're not if you're not in God's presence serving Him, you flourish. But if you're not, you break down, and and hell is a form of breakdown. That's I think one of the reasons why the Bible uses the term fire there talks about the hell fire mm-hmm. is probably not that it's necessarily literal fire, but the fire is is um, uh, it's it's breakdown. It's it's disintegration when things things break down into their constituent parts and they lose their wholeness and their coherence. And Lewis, uh, in his fictional, see, unfortunately, the trouble is, C.S. Lewis's best stuff on hell is kind of fiction, like Great Divorce or even yeah. Screw Tape Letters. But he's getting across the idea that essentially all God is doing with people when it comes to judging them is giving them what they actually have chosen. Uh, they they want to be without God, and so you get what you want, even though you're made for Him. And so the disintegration starts happening right here. Frankly, if you keep, for example, if you keep a, a really ba- a bad grudge, as you know, the doctors will tell you, you might have an ulcer or heart problems. I was actually looking this up lately because I'm getting all these interviews about mm-hmm. anger and bitterness. And I actually looked up online some of, you know, what does anger do to your body? It tends, it, it's terrible for your heart. Mm. Uh, ulcers very often come from it, but it's really bad. I mean, your, your chance of heart disease or attack is way higher. And that's disintegration. And that's just the beginning of disintegration. Of course, anger also disintegrates relationships. So, for example, if you're really angry at a person of the other gender or a person of, the other ra- of another race, some of that is probably going to affect your relationship with anybody of the other gender or anybody of the other race, and that's breakdown too. So all hell is, is a, um, you might say, is an identity not based on God going on and on forever. And that's how I would do that, rather to say, uh, uh, you know, that God, in some ways, God is giving us what we want. And what those of us who are being saved, basically, God is not giving us what we originally wanted. But He's He's, uh, you know, when we we believe in Him, He changes our heart. We give ourselves to Him, He changes our heart. So basically, but why that's does He need that, to give a penalty? Pardon me. Why does He give, need to give a penalty but the substitute? Well, the penalties, you know, I do. I do look. On the one hand, I do know the Bible says God says that the self-chosen penalty is right and it's due but it is self-chosen and i think that's what you have to keep in mind that's that that's what is so just about it it's just because we're not giving god his due but it's also just because we've chosen it ourselves so there's two ways he he, he is only looking at the one way in which it's Mm -hmm. just that is 
that God is saying, you've dishonored me. You've dishonored my glory. You haven't given me what I, what you owe me as a, your creator. But it's also just because we've actually chosen it ourselves. So he's a really, I think that's fair to put it that way. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. You talked about uh, disintegration and disintegration of a person, disintegration of a relationship. We also see disintegration of communities. Um, I'm thinking about mm. Wendell Berry in his uh, new book uh, was talking about the necessity of prepaid forgiveness is what he uh, called it in a, in a small rural community. He says you need to have prepaid forgiveness there like a fire extinguisher where mm. you realize we're going to need each other and we need to bear with right. each other. And he says, a society with without that soon starts talking about civil war or holy war. Uh, is he right about that? Yes. First of all, I, what, what's interesting, it does. I, it's interesting that Wendell Berry talks about the small town, basically, or the, the smaller community. Uh, it is not crazy, even though we, we like it and it's we can make jokes about it, you notice how many BBC murder mysteries are in little in small towns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're little English villages, and there's you know at the Our end church. of them, yeah, three or four, yeah. And the answer is that that um, unless you forgive, unless you are constantly repairing your relationships and being honest about it, um, you are going to uh, you, since you need each other, the relationships are going to break down. And then you're going to have that. So he's right. But it's also true in uh, in the macro. I mean, Miroslav Volf's great book, Exclusion and Embrace, which is far more intelligent than my book, but also way less accessible because he wrote it as a philosopher, theologian. But he was writing as a Croatian back in the early 90s, saying, how do we Croatians look at the Serbians for what they're mm. doing to us? And um, he's also talking about breakdown of of human community and and he talks about embrace it's it's i i don't don't feel like i've got the uh ability to summarize it very well because it's a really great book but he talks about embrace meaning that as a croatian he has to at least open his arms towards serbians meaning make it possible for there to be some kind of forgiveness and reconciliation he's got that great line i use in the book where where Vol says forgiveness flounders when I exclude the perpetrator from the community of humans and mm. I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Mm. So when I stop thinking of them as an equal human being, you know, but as a sort of a lower life than me, and if I stop thinking of myself as a sinner, then human community just falls apart. 
And I think that's actually part of what maybe, maybe Wendell Berry's talking about with prepay is yeah. that you've got to have that attitude of saying, these other people are human beings like me. They're equally, they're, I should never look down at any other race or any other class or any other person that they're low life. And I need to never forget that I'm also a sinner. So uh, small communities break down, big communities break down, um, you know, urban urban communities break down without forgiveness. Yeah. But, you know, you talk about in the book how there are there are several different forms of forgiveness or, or quote unquote forgiveness that people can have. And one of those you talk about the ancient Greeks and, and this idea of just sort of condescending. I'm, I'm yeah. such a good person that I'll just just overlook this um, yeah. or this transactional uh, yeah. sort of uh, idea. And I've, I've heard a lot of uh, Christians say that their understanding is in order to forgive somebody, the person has to repent. Has to repent. And, and otherwise, it's, you, you, can't, uh, you can't forgive. Is that an example of a transactional uh, sort, of, uh, sort of forgiveness? It might be. Martha mm -hmm. Nussbaum has been pretty critical, and she's a, a University of Chicago philosopher, not a believer, not a Christian believer, but she's been pretty um, uh, critical of the Christian approach to forgiveness because she does think that Christianity says you don't have to forgive unless the person repents. And that's Luke 17. Now, what I try to do in the book, and I've gotten a lot of criticism already, by the way, some online, because a lot of, there are a lot of Christians who say, unless the person repents, you don't have to forgive. The trouble is Matthew eleven twenty five. I'm sorry, Mark 11, forgive me. Mark eleven twenty five. Jesus says, if you're standing and you're praying and you realize you have anything against anybody, forgive them. And uh, even the Lord's Prayer basically says the same thing. That is, you have to forgive. Uh, and it's, it, it doesn't say unless if the person repents, you, you just have to forgive. So how do you, what, what do you do with, Matt, with Mark eleven twenty five 25 and Luke 17, where he does say, where Jesus says, if the person forgives, uh, asks, repents seven times, 70 times, seven, you know, you have to forgive him. And I think the answer is you got to put those, you cannot, um, I think it's the Third Night Articles, uh, Russell, where it says, you must not expound scripture in one place as to make it repugnant to another. It's, mm. a, it's a really wonderful way of saying you really can't throw one scripture under the bus for another. You have to make sure you do justice to both of them. Yeah. And I've seen people really just ignore one of them. And it's pretty clear, I think, that there's an internal forgiveness that Mark eleven twenty five, and then there is an extension of uh, an offer of reconciliation for people who will repent. You know, if, so I've forgiven the person, then I, and if the person repents, then I can reconcile too. If mm -hmm. the person won't repent, there's no reconciliation. Yeah. So yeah. I like to say um, Martha Nussbaum is wrong that. Uh, Forgiveness can be given without making the person grovel. That's why she doesn't like it. She says yeah. it's really a form of punishment. You say it's forgiveness, but to say you've got to grovel and you've got to come to me, it's really essentially a way of saying, you know, I'm going to punish you. It's, it's kind of ironic. Yeah. So a forgiveness that always and only demands repentance would be punitive. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, a forgiveness that doesn't care about reconciliation, that's what I call in the book the therapeutic approach 
which is all that matter is that I get over my anger and I don't care about whether I'm repairing the human community or not. Yeah. So I do think you have to keep the two together. Uh, David Pallison has a book, one of his last books before he died was called Good and Angry. It's a great little book. It's a counseling book. And he says, you got to have the two together. Otherwise you either are all therapeutic. It's all about you or it's, it's punitive. Mm. We had a listener who asked the question, uh, talking about uh, a, a situation with his parents uh, who who harmed him really horribly. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's obvious it's really a horrible harming of him. And he said, "They're dead. Uh, they're yeah. gone. There, there's no way for me to." Um, even ask why there's no way for me to reconcile what what does one do well you have nothing to do but mark 11 25 Uh, you can't do luke 17 which is reconcile have them repent let me tell you as you know it is so much easier to forgive somebody who's repenting Mm -hmm. you know somebody who comes and in fact, in fact, actually, I think I mentioned in the book, if somebody comes to you and says, please forgive me, I really have done wrong. I really wronged you. I really wrong. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Don't say, oh, don't think anything about it. Just say, you, you, <laughs> don't dismiss yeah. that. You ought to say, I forgive you. Say it. <laughs> yeah. You know, make the commitment. Um, but and it's so much easier if somebody's doing that. But on the other hand, here you have two parents. They haven't repented. You still have to do the Mark eleven twenty five. The way to do that is to remind yourself of where what Jesus has done for you, and um, to simply say, "Father, please help me with this," because I think if your parents have wronged you that bad, you even if you do all the things you possibly can do consciously to forgive, I think you're going to have to just say. Be honest and say it's going to have an impact. It's going to have an effect on you the way in which you react, and you're going to have to be looking for it. Maybe with a counselor. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no way that you're not going to be affected by it, and you're going to have to probably come back to it at various points where you suddenly say, "Oh, I see why I do that, or why I'm angry at now, or why I'm so upset." But I still think you can you can do Mark eleven twenty five even if there's no even if they're not repenting. One time we were having conversation. I think I think in the book club. Um, where I was talking about what it was like to pray the sinner's prayer a thousand times, or more than a thousand times uh, as a kid, because I was always trying to think, uh, you know, if you if you have faith and you repent sincerely, you're forgiven. But how do I know uh, my my own mixed motives? How do I know when I've been completely sincere? So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask God for forgiveness now, hoping that this time I'm sincere enough for us to stick. And you made the comment that that's not been your experience at all. And part of that probably is the difference between Northern and Southern sort of uh, expectations with uh, emotional religious experience. But part of it probably is that you were an adult when you came to faith in Christ and I was a kid and was sort of in that environment where that was that was happening all the time. But I think even, even people who aren't in that sort of situation, there are people who have a hard time believing that God really has forgiven them. 
And even if they don't question their salvation, they, they may just with some some sin in their their lives. Uh, I've known a lot, deal with a lot of college students right now who think God's angry at them, and and what they're doing is actually repenting of sin. But they have this they have this idea that repentance means I repent of this sin. Doesn't mean I'm sinless, but it means I'm sinless with regard to that sin. Now I move on to another sin. And if I keep having to grapple with the sin, it means I haven't repented. It means I'm not forgiven. How, how do you get somebody out of that kind of echo chamber in their minds if they just can't believe God would forgive them or has forgiven? Well, there, I, listen, I got three different possibilities. Maybe you do all three. Let me, let me go this way. What, one is... Uh, one possibility, and I do mention this in the book at some point here, is when somebody says, I I keep asking God's forgiveness for something I've done, but I actually just don't feel he really has forgiven me. Um, that comes close to the person, that comes very close to the person who says, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Mm -hmm. I, I often feel like those two people are basically the same. And what I usually say is, uh, now, if I was in a bad mood, Russell, which I never am, never. <laughs> but if so. I was in a bad mood, I'd say, oh, so you have higher standards than God. Is that right? Now, um, which is fair, but then you want to say, well, why do they have higher standards than God? And what, so what I'm usually saying is there's a kind of works righteousness going on here that you really actually are not, you just really don't want to accept grace. So for in some cases... When a person says, um, um, you know, I really blew something. I really did something very stupid. I, I lied. I got caught. I lost my job. And my career is never going to be back on track. And I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. And I really, I just feel like I can't be forgiven for that. And in a way, I would say maybe, and I wouldn't say this right away. It would take a long time. I get, I get the person pastorally. I get their confidence. I suggest this. So I wouldn't do it, just jump, drop this on them. But I would say it could be that actually your real God is your career. Mm -hmm. And see, those false gods can never forgive you. See, if, you, if you're living for your career and you violate your career, you do something wrong, your career will punish, that, that God will punish you the rest of your life. So God, Jesus is the only God that can actually forgive you. Anything else you live for will just punish you. That's one approach. Another approach that I might want to look at is that they understand only half of the gospel, which is God, my, my, my sin is imputed to, to Jesus, but not the other half, which is that Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. They, they, if you don't understand both of those things, then there's a sense in which I, I, I ask for forgiveness, but now it's up to me to kind of live a good life and look, I blew it again. It's kind of a half gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, they always feel like, well, I, yeah, I, I know I just asked for forgiveness, but boy, you know, I'm going to do something else. Or I did something else. And not to say, yeah, but in Christ, God looks at you and sees you as an absolute beauty. A lot of people just don't understand that half of the gospel. And that's another thing I would go to. Finally, and this might have been true of the young Russell Moore, is that when people say you're saved by faith, not by your works, sometimes people think that means I'm saved by having enough faith. So the faith ends up becoming a kind of work. Yeah. 
And so what you really say is, I, you have to remember, it's not the faith that saves you, it's the object of the faith that saves you, see? So I, what I, the illustration I like to say is, if I walk out on five inches of ice, trusting myself to the ice, and I say, oh, I don't know, I think I'm gonna fall through, I'm gonna fall through, but it's five inches thick, it'll be fine. You're trusting yourself to the ice, and even if you have weak faith in the ice, the ice will save you. Hmm. On the other hand, if you walk out on a half an inch of ice and you say, I know this will save me. So you're filled with faith. It doesn't matter. The object cannot hold you yeah. up. Okay. So the point is, it's not it's not the, the faith, how, how much faith you have in the object that saves you. It's whether you have faith in the right object. Even weak faith in, in the right object will save you. And so what I often try to say is be careful that you don't think that the faith is the thing that saves you. So those are three different avenues, you know, looking at the imputation of Christ's righteousness, making sure you understand that faith is the instrument that receives the salvation, not the thing that actually merits it. And also just going back to seeing whether or not there's an idol in your life that's punishing you, um, because uh, idols can never forgive you. Mm -hmm. Ashley here. If you're looking for another podcast that features inspiring conversations with religious leaders, authors, and artists, then I recommend listening to the acclaimed podcast, No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feelings Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like award-winning journalist and best-selling author Tim Alberta and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson to ask what it means to live a life worth living. You can even hear from Russell Moore on No Small Endeavor. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times best-selling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. You know, you um, you talk about cancel culture. And uh, we talk about how cancel culture is sort of a reverse of the old uh, shame honor uh, kind of system yeah. uh, where it's not the person's, it's not invulnerability that's to be honored, it's fragility. And mm-hmm. that that reverses it with, with cancel, cancel culture. I'm wondering what you think about uh, our mutual friend, Jonathan Rausch, uh, wrote about in Constitution of Knowledge, cancel culture and troll culture. Um, which is, you know, they're, they're similar, but the attempt to kind of hound someone. Uh, and what he says is the targeted person of either of those, their first instinct's going to be to apologize, to sort of get their life back. But the problem is that that just proves to the cancelers, the trolls, whoever it is, that they're, they're getting somewhere, <laughs> that, that it's yeah. actually uh, functioning and that their outrage was justified. And so... How, how how do you how do we sort through that as as a society? Boy oh boy, um, yeah, uh, it's true that your first response is to is to start apologizing, and that's a little bit like throwing a crocodile a piece of red meat and thinking, okay, now it'll go away. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, and. 
the 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 reverse shame and honor culture is if you have what they would consider privilege or platform then it gives them a sense of it gives them a sense of power that they're bringing down somebody who's almost always more prominent than they are so you know for example when, evidently and i don't know this world very well but evidently the the author world especially the young teen fiction author world mm -hmm. is supposed to be a real real uh shark shark uh you know tank where if you know you you write something for teens and it's not exactly right especially the more well-known authors who have done pretty well yeah uh others are watching to make sure that they say something or do something that is uh, yeah, I, you know, something that they consider insensitive and then they go after them. I, I feel that, that we shouldn't be looking at the internet as the place where accountability happens. It, you can't really hold a person accountable. Uh, that's a danger because like, uh, for example, the woman, okay. A woman who says my, let's go back to about a half an hour ago. Mm -hmm. A woman who says my abuser is now up teaching the Bible. Mm -hmm. Now, let's just say a person is an ordained minister. Uh, what she should not do, I don't think, is to try to cancel them on online. I I feel that um, that actually doesn't work. He can just turn it off. Uh, it he, what she ought to be doing is trying to find face to face relationships that he's got that they they can really hold you accountable because we're we're embodied beings. Or, I think, or the church or ministry or, or whatever. Is, yes, is that's right. And, and, right. Right. Our, our mutual friend, Yuval Levine, has written an incredible book on the, the value of institutions. And actually, we're not really going to have any kind of stable society without institutions. We, we mm -hmm. can't. And therefore, find an institution that can that discipline the person. But the trouble with the Internet is not institutional. It's not, it's not incarnational. It's not personal. And it actually, I think, is really actually uh, ineffective. But it very often gives the powerless person a, f a temporary feeling, a gotcha. You know, mm -hmm. I, I own the lib today. You know, I, mm -hmm. I did something, I said something, but it's an illusion and not yeah. a very good use of time. Yeah. What, what about if, if, if you need to be forgiven? Uh, you, you need to make an apology. How do you determine how public that apology should be? I mean, how, how do you know when I should just apologize to the person or yeah. when I should get up and make a public sort of announcement or post something online? How, how, how does one know how to do that? Well, forgive me for pulling a Presbyterian uh, term on you, Russell, but uh, in, in, the, in, in Presbyterian uh, discipline, books of discipline, where when someone is... Uh, being disciplined by the elders there's an interesting place and this isn't a very good word but this is an older it's it's not a good word anymore but they say interestingly enough that the repentance should be as as public as the sin is notorious mm -hmm. Mm. which i think is fair i mean the, the notorious is a little kind of dastardly but basically it says um if a sin is likely to be out there and most a lot of people know about it. Then the then the repentance ought to be that public. Um, so, for, so for example, um, I was years ago. It was a frankly a really great church in in um, 
uh, Philadelphia I was part of when I was teaching at Westminster Seminary. And it turned out that a uh, an elder's wife um, ended up having an affair with another elder. So you know, the wife of one elder had an affair with a, with another elder. And um, when that came out, that was really, you know, it was devastating the whole congregation. Everybody found out about it. And so the elders did a very good job that when uh, the, the parties were willing to repent um, and the, uh, the marriages, as far as I know, and even though I've lost touch with some of them now, as far as I know, because it was a long time ago, as far as I know, the marriages survived. But the, the elders rightly said this had to be pretty public. And mm-hmm. so smack the, the repentance... Uh, the, the elders got up and in the, right in the middle of a couple of different church services for everybody, they talked about what had happened. Uh, but, you know, both couples came up and gave testimonies about what they've been doing and what's been going on and all that stuff. It was kind of painful for everybody, but it was very moving. And I have hardly ever seen anything like that. Mm. Um, and I'll give you another example. Uh, Russell, again, I'm, I'm pulling a, a Presbyterian on you. You know, you know Sandy Wilson. Do you know Sandy at yeah, all? Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. Well, Sandy, came, uh, as an interim pastor, you know, he's retired now. Sandy went to a a particular Presbyterian church where there had been some tremendous um, antipathy between the elders and the pastor, and basically the elders ran the pastor off. Uh, half the congregation was furious with the elders. Uh, Sandy came on down and talked to spent a lot of time with the elders until most of the elders were willing to say, you know, we really didn't handle this right at all. And we owe the whole congregation an apology. And uh, now this is secondhand. I wasn't there, so I may have gotten it wrong. But believe it or not, Sandy had a, a, a whole church service in which the elders got up, confessed where they think they had really misplayed things, asked the congregation's forgiveness. I'm not sure it was every elder, but at least some of them did. And then Sandy said, if you are ready to forgive the elders, stand up. Mm-hmm. And everybody stood up. And then there was laying on of hands and there was praying. Can you believe it? I mean, yeah. now, admittedly, these things I'm telling you about are really rare, unfortunately. Right. But they were right. enormously healing and they were public. But they were public because it was notorious. Mm-hmm. And I do think you have to be very careful about uh, about bringing something out that virtually nobody knows about. I don't think that yeah. is particularly fair. So there we go. You know, we had uh, an article in our CT pastors about pastors, especially after COVID. This has happened a lot where pastors will have people in their congregation mm-hmm. just ghost them. They 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 won't uh, come around them, won't respond to yeah. them or anything. They're just gone. And I, I know a lot of people, regardless of whether they're pastors or not, when they've when they've done something to somebody and they're seeking forgiveness, sometimes somebody will just say, I don't forgive you. Sometimes somebody will just ghost you. They, they just won't respond at all. How does, how does a person handle that? If you really do want to apologize, you want to be forgiven, you want yeah. to reconcile, and the other person just won't. Well, you know, it depends on the, frankly, it depends on the relationship with that other person. So, for example, if, if um, now you're talking about Christians and Christians, I want you to, yeah. I, I do think there's a big difference between, um, a relationship, let's say you're a Christian and a non-Christian has wronged you. A non-Christian, somebody at work, somebody whatever. You do your best, you forgive, you reach out, you talk, and they just are not having it. I think there's a limit to what you can do then. Yeah. But what if they're in, it's the same thing inside the church. Well, then Jesus actually tells you, 
that you need to get the church involved to try to bring people together. Uh, so it depends a great deal on are you both members of the same church or not. Um, but by the way, I would say this, uh, it's the younger they are, the younger the person is, the more likely they are to do the ghost thing because mm-hmm. they've learned it through social media. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I do think you have to watch, especially your younger adults, and you need to exhort the younger adults to say that's not how you should deal with conflict, especially not if you're in the, the, uh, the Christian community. I did talk to a, a dean of women of a, a major university who told me in confidence that um, she thought that what you know what she was going to be doing in many cases, she thought she most of her time was she'd be counseling women to help them deal with being a woman in a man's world and all the issues, you know, women's rights, et cetera. And she says, well, some of it I do. But she says, it's what's frightening in the last four years is what percentage of time women come in to talk to me about problems they're having. And in the end, they're basically just, they don't know how to break up. She says, I'm doing, I'm doing relationship counseling. They have no idea how to break up with a guy. They just ghost. And then the guy gets furious and and they just don't know how to sit. It's because younger people don't know how to sit down and actually say, here's why I want to stop this. Or here's where you wronged me. They just say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And they learn that on social media. So this teen of women is saying, I I really need to go out and get a degree in counseling because it's really not about women's rights. It's only about, I, I don't even know how to. It's, and it's also not, by the way, the women breaking up with guys, but in many cases, the women just uh, sort of, they have a friendship that goes bad. Yeah. And they really don't know what to do with it. They yeah. have no idea. And they go in to see the dean of women. So, so I, the younger, our younger, yeah. I have a friend who has a son who tried to, college-age son, he tried to break up with this girl that he was dating. And her response was, you don't get to make that decision for the two of us. And he didn't know what to do. And so he's, he's saying to his dad, um, I, I actually do think I get to, the, either <laughs> one of us gets to make that decision with the two of us, but I don't know what to do now. <laughs> and so yeah. they're, they're kind of still together. Right. And I mean, that's what I mean by saying younger people, because of social media, are uh, pretty awkward around these things. And I think we have to be very careful not to be dis, dis, you know, disdainful to say they, they, they are living in a different world than we did in many, many mm. ways. I'm mm. so old, Russell, that I remember when answer machines came in. It used <laughs> to be, if you called somebody and they didn't answer, there was no way to leave a message. It was like, call them up, go see them, or write them a letter. So, Yeah, yeah. Well, you gave us all quite a scare uh, last year, year before. Um, you want to tell everybody how you're, how you're doing physically, health in terms of health? Yes. Um, I'm extraordinarily grateful for how I'm doing right now. Um, this summer, my, uh, the chemotherapy that I was, I was taking for stage four pancreatic cancer after two years of chemotherapy, it stopped working and, uh, the cancer just started growing through my liver and it, I went down to the national Institute of health, which has got a, uh, at Bethesda, Maryland, which has a, a, uh, a trial of doing immunotherapy, which doesn't, isn't chemotherapy. It's taking your own lymphocytes and learning how to direct them toward your cancer. Um, receiving that, uh, in June, I, t- I, I went down there and got the, uh, and got the treatment in June. It was very rough. Uh, the, in hindsight, 
the doctor said it's not so surprising because really a lot of people, you know, find it very difficult. It was very hard on me and on my family. But now that uh, I've got it in my in me, the uh, the cancer starting to recede again. So God is not taking me out yet. Um, so and that's and I have, I'm very very grateful because as you know, if those of you know anything about pancreatic cancer, especially stage four is I'm gonna, I'm into my third year since diagnosis and that's pretty unusual. So we live by faith, not by sight, but but we, but we right now we, we still live. <laughs> yeah, I'm still living by faith. <clears throat> so. Well, a lot of us are thrilled to see what God has uh, done in protecting you so far because we need Tim Keller for a long, long, long time. So we're grateful. Tim, thanks for being with me today on the show. You're welcome, Russell, and I love it. I love our talks, so thanks so much for having me. The book is called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? And listeners, I'd like to end by reading, we mentioned Wendell Berry a few minutes ago, I'd like to read a poem of his called Enemies, in which he says, if you are not to become a monster, you must care what they think. If you care what they think, how will you not hate them and so become a monster of the opposite kind? From where then is love to come? Love for your enemy, that, that is the way of, of, of liberty. From forgiveness, forgiven they go free of you and you of them, they are to you as sunlight on a green branch. You must not think of them again, except as monsters like yourself, pitiable because unforgiving. You've been listening to The Russell Moore Show. Be sure to subscribe and to let somebody know about this that would uh, would benefit from the conversation and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts that helps people to find us. You can click on the cover art if you're listening on a smartphone and find out how to order this book by Tim Keller uh, and find more information about Christianity Today. Until next week, this is Russell Moore and this is The Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and our host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Administration for CT by Christine Kolb and Abby Perry. Production assistance by Core Media. Beth Grabencourt, coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer and sound mixer. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. 